Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, this podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Cam Pitchers or Joel Shackleton have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. All right, happy Wednesday, Joel. We're back for another hump day. So yesterday I texted you because I didn't have a calendar reminder in here for for the podcast episode, but I strictly remember leaving here and saying, see you next Wednesday. So I texted you quick, hey, are we coming? So I was, you, you confirmed, obviously we're recording today. I was fully prepared to say, Joel, you're a liar and I will never work on a podcast with you ever again and do my best James Harden impression just to flex everything that I can do as a, minor part of this podcast to say i hold all the power yeah as the general manager mm-hmm. of the podcast at current time find any trade <laughs> opportunities and that's either speaking to your relative value as a co-host mm-hmm. or the fact that nobody does this mm-hmm. for a living yeah i just i we might jump back into this later but so for those that haven't seen the news or aren't don't follow sports as much as closely as as i do um, so James Harden, huge, has been a huge NBA star for the last 10, 12 years, definitely an aging star. So back end, back nine of his career, if you will. And he demanded a trade at the start of the off season. The NBA off season is the greatest soap opera for any sports <laughs> fan ever. Cause there's just a new rumor every single day, basically yeah. up until right now when things kind of close up, rosters are basically set, etc. But you have this guy who's, who's demanded a trade and there might be, you know, obviously there's some things behind closed doors that we don't know about, but what I w- thought the interesting piece out of this or the interesting piece in the NBA in general, because you have an example of James Harden here, who's essentially kind of holding the power and has a, a track record of this kind of demanding out of the city that he's playing in and essentially saying, I'm only going to one spot. So team, you have to trade me. I'm not playing a single more second for you, but I'm actually only going to go to LA and specifically the Clippers because that's who I want to play for. And I'm not going to accept a trade anywhere else. And so you have a similar situation with, again, Damian Lillard in, in Portland, who has said, I'm only going to Miami. So you have to figure out a trade to get me there. And so you're holding the team hostage, essentially. And there's no rules against any of this stuff. But the, I, I think the NBA is obviously taking notice of this. I think Adam Silver has come out, the commissioner of the NBA, and basically poo-pooed the situation and said, you can't have this kind of conversations, at least out in the open, too. Like, this needs, needs to be behind closed doors, negotiate with your agent. There needs to be discussions on this. It's not good for the game, et cetera. So I just wanted your take quickly off the top in terms of, I mean, it's very NBA-specific for the most part. I think maybe in professional soccer, there's a little bit of this, too, in terms of the player having some control over where they are going. But it's, it's almost shifted so much to this side where, in the NBA anyways where you have, it's great for news stories and publicity because people are always talking about it, which is like a good thing for the NBA. But then for the, probably for the owners feeling of the NBA, feeling like this is a quote unquote fair playing field for the most part, which we all know it's not, but to have that feeling, you got, you got players dictating or holding your team's hostage, essentially holding your executive team hostage in terms of, hey, we signed this four-year contract, but after two years, you can just say, no, I'm not playing there a second. You have to trade me to this specific place. This is, I think, speaks to something that's happened across what the internet has done to the power dynamics of what was once before um, held generally by large corporations, or in this case, owners, um, and now has been distributed or more 
I shouldn't say fairly distributed, but distributed differently in terms of the power dynamics going now more so to an individual. So you can see this happening in um, all angles of, of entertainment. Um, you could use Taylor Swift as an example here. You could have Facebook, Instagram, and the people that post or even the superstars that find themselves on top of those platforms. Um, ben Thompson and his Stratechery outlet talks a lot about aggregators, aggregators of demand, aggregators of eyeballs. Um, and when you are a superstar who demands eyeballs, so think LeBron, James Harden, um, Damian Lillard, uh, they have an outsized um, impact on the sport, um, where they can go. And I think in the case of James Harden, he's overplayed his hand here. Mm -hmm. He feels he's LeBron James or Steph Curry. And at once, one point he probably was, he's no longer. I think a trade to a specific team could be done in the right moment of his career and he's no longer there. So um, in this case, poor move. His, it's very difficult to, especially people with such strong personalities, I think control them to not speak out, whether it be via text or on social media. James Harden, I believe, made a mistake here. Um, he's now going to have to backpedal and go and play for the 76ers, or at least he will for the beginning of the yeah, season. Yeah, he's going to do the same thing when he was leaving Houston. He's going to gain 40 pounds. Yeah. He's not going to run. Yeah. And they're gonna be. See, that's that's the piece, though, that, still, that they need to find a workaround for. They have, without getting into too much detail and going into the CBA of the NBA, which is a little bit convoluted, they have basically changed things in terms of, like, max contracts for – um, for veteran players, like players over 30 years old, and how easy or hard it is to to move those contracts or how those can be structured. So there, there's less incentive now for teams to... It's harder to move those contracts, so then there's less incentive for teams to take on those contracts. Right. And so that's what the position the 76ers are in right now is to say, well, James, we your market value is not there, especially when everyone on the on, within the league knows that you only want to go to one spot. Mm-hmm. And so, but they're still in a, between Why a rock and a hard place. so bad with the Clippers? I don't, yeah, who, who knows? Who knows? I mean, Steve Ballmer must be give, tell, giving them, promising in the sun. I guess they, they had the biggest budget in the, or one of the biggest budgets from a salary perspective. Ballmer needs in to bring league, in Sadie so. Nadella. So hire him from Microsoft, <laughs> yeah. help him rebuild that franchise because I'm not so sure that he has the right dynamic of superstars. I, I'm not so sure either, but it's, it's just, there's still not a pathway here for the team that would be traditional in terms of, okay, well, I can rest on my principles and that's what like the Portland situation with, with Dame Alert again is that's what's kind of trending that way to say, well, if we're not going to get what we want, we still you're still under contract for another year and or two years, I think, in, in Lillard's case, and say, all right, screw you. We're, not gonna, we're just going to let you sit on the bench, and we're we're not going to we're not going to ha- play like have a long term f- effect to our like who we are as a team and what we represent to our fans and everything like that. To say we're not going to bend to this will essentially, but then again, too, if you're in the position of I think depending on where, where you are as a team, are you a are you trying to gunning for a high draft pick? Are you rebuilding? Easier to make that decision. Whereas if you're in a huge sports market like Philly, who's got other superstars in the team who are gunning to win, and you have essentially the superstar talent that represents value either on the court or in a trade, and you're letting that person just sit there and do nothing, you're in a really tough spot. So I think it's, this is usually we head into the middle of August and it's the dog days. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this news has come out and I something's going to have to give in the next call it 90 days as that we get into the start of the league and, and the season. I think and a lot of players be... would benefit from saying sorry and perhaps <laughs> that is not happening. So mm. <laughs> I can guarantee you that. Well, that's too bad because not, I mean, he might look professional like he's grown up a little bit. If he could just say, oops, but that ain't happening. That's right. not that's not the brand. Anyway, so, so I, I, I am I am not calling you a liar. We're gonna come back to this topic because I wanna speak to um, the power of Taylor Swift, someone who's one and is bigger than the industry. And itself. she can dictate what she wants to do. Right. But in twenty fourteen, 
people didn't think that, mm-hmm. right? But she just went on a nine-year tear. <laughs> so when you win every award, you can do what you want. So Cam, let's jump into a market update first before we retouch on some real estate stuff and the, and the Swifty mania. Um, so this past, call it two and a half weeks, um, after July, we've had a week, or I should say the market's been selling off. I believe we sort of talked about this through July and then into August, the last five or six episodes, where it's the market had run quite far um, on a valuation basis. It was expensive. I think that bullishness or sentiment of investors had peaked. We saw a historic shift in sentiment from mm. bottom of summer last year to middle of summer this year, where we had the most bearish investors have ever been, even more bearish than they were in 2008, to now we're now at, well, at least in the middle of July, they were feverish. Like it was as though the entire world had changed. And it's amazing what price can do to somebody's mind. Now, we're starting to digest that. I think we're going to be pretty choppy for the next six weeks here. Um, Effectively, what did occur is we reached back to fairly close to all-time highs with the NASDAQ on an equally weighted basis. And when you get back to a price in which a lot of people bought their securities, you often run into what is called overhead supply. And overhead supply is these people a year ago bought these companies, and now they finally are going to get their money back, so they're willing to sell it. And this is where you have a ton of volume traded, and then you end up having a lot of, like, I mean, you're just exchanging securities with a lot of people who are wanting to either take new positions or they're, they're, they're reshifting their opinion. And obviously sentiment has now reached, has shifted back the other direction. We've seen continued pressure on a inflation basis. And right now, if, if you're, if you're watching the U S dollar index, it's starting to tick back up. Uh, the rest of the world is not dealing with inflation as well, but the United States continues to run into that battle. They're a little bit concerned. Same with within Canada. So just yesterday, we had a inflation report, and I think everyone should take a look at what Trevor Toome posts because he does a fantastic job putting it all into context via charts. And I believe month over month, we had a surprising number of 0.7%. So now if you were to multiply that by 12, it's something like, what, 4.9? You're the accountant. Um, percent, which would be very, very hot inflation on a Mm. year over year basis. Now, I don't anticipate that we're going to continue to see the same contributions to the inflation number as we have with inflate with interest. However, um, because interest is something like 33 or 34 percent of the inflation number. So basically mortgage interest, the thing that they controlled most with interest with with um, borrow they, rates. Yeah, they, they have they have more uh, more influence on what that number is. Based exactly. On what setting, so, so they've effectively contributed thirty five percent of inflation or thirty four percent of inflation with something that they're trying to use to control inflation. So it's it's kind of a unfortunate reality. But what really kind of shocked us from a number perspective is actually the contribution from energy prices. So the reason why inflation had been running or um, falling so quickly is because oil prices went from 125 back down to 65. And that was contributing to a reduction in inflation, right? And now it started to pick back up again. We just saw a historic um, per barrel cut from the uh, from OPEC two days ago. And that has really started to reignite the commodity as a con- contribution to inflation talk or speech or whatever. And something that's going to be a problem, probably the remainder of Q3. So we're two months or halfway through Q3, and it's been a poor one from a equity performance perspective. Europe's down, I mean, August to date, minus four. Japan's down minus five. Emerging markets down seven. Um, the only countries really doing well are commodity-based ones. So think Brazil, Canada, et cetera. Um, and technology's really t- hit the brakes. But I mean, after a Historic run. Yeah, yeah, 35, 40% run in the NASDAQ. Um, a, a fall of 7, 8% is to be expected, quite frankly. So um, outside of that, I mean, for me, what I'm watching, I think that this is something where I'm sitting back digesting. I mean, right now you have this battle between 
you can get a risk-free rate return of 5 to 7% by buying treasuries or other types of debt securities. Or you're going to go into equities that are trading at 21, 22 times earnings. Like it's, it's, it's this, mm. this balance where who knows where the value is in this market. So right now, I think J.C. Perret said it really well where he's effectively said, you know what, for me, I'd rather just sit back, wait and see what happens. Um, he's going to be super patient. And I think that that's a, a nice approach to take at the moment. For me, making a business transition, this couldn't be better. Um, it gives me some time to breathe and to reposition and to like, get an understanding of where we're going to go over the next two or three quarters because mm. it's going to be challenging. We have an election in the United States. I think in Canada specifically, we do have a very large real estate market that is challenged at the moment. Mm -hmm. So you combine a lot of these, these externalities and um, it's going to be fun. It's going to be wild. I never bet against Santa. So Q4 is almost <laughs> always hot, especially when people got money in their pockets. Markets are doing well. Or their card. housing value is high still. Mm -hmm. They got a big credit card balance, or sorry, a cleaned up credit card. <laughs> Heading um, into the holiday season. Yes. I wanted so. to ask you one, one tidbit about what you, or a question about what you just said. Uh, in regards to, I think you said JC Perrette's comments, I'm going to take a step back and, and see how things play out. I think we've talked a lot on this podcast, you specifically, about how hard it is to time the market, know when to go back in or make a move. What kind of things would you be looking for in terms of when you are being patient, what's going to cause you to then make a move? What are the, what are the things that you would look at so most closely? So it's really important to define your time horizon when you're thinking about this. J.C. Peretz trades. So he is he can be in and out of position in a day, right? He can change his mind within a day. I think it's also really important when you're watching MSNBC or BNN and you have a billionaire hedge fund manager who comes on. And this was going wild the last week where everyone was talking about um, who's the guy that was – that short, short of the market, he's Burry. Yeah. Burry, Michael Burry he's is got, now. He's got 1.6 billion in shorts on the spy and the yeah Nasdaq. Yeah, and so whale wisdom only reports every quarter. So if you're managing over 400 million dollars in the United States, you have to report your um, your portfolio and your positioning. They can change their positioning however they want mm -hmm. within the three month horizon. But however, on the day in which you have to report, you have to tell you what you're doing. So one, hedge fund managers love to put on a position for a couple of days to then report it and show what they're, what they're looking at. Some people don't care. Some people do. Michael Burry might be that person who's trying to send a, a message via whale wisdom, whereas Baupost and Tepper and Atreides Management and some of the really big guys don't care as much. And they're, they're, they're just managing to manage professionally. So People should understand that when you're seeing these posts from these influencers, financial influencers, you need to take it within context. Now, back to what you asked. What am I looking for specifically? I'm looking for, I always go back to the dollar. So US, the US dollar, how is it? how does it look? US equities do really well when the US dollar is weak. So seeing strength or weakness there is really important. Now, I like to look at technicals on the US dollar specifically so that I can kind of anticipate a direction move, a breakout one way or the other. That way you can take position the other way. Now, again, the people that I manage money for specifically, I mean, again, this is not financial advice. You need to consider the fact that your time horizon is different from all these other people who are talking about their, their strategy. For me, I'm just looking for indicators there. Now, I'm managing people's retirements, right? Or their business assets, those sorts of things. and. You, I'm not trading in and out of things like that. So um, when I'm talking about being patient, I mean, if you've got a bunch of cash, there's a way for you to make 5 or 6 or 7% fairly risk-free. Not, not completely, but um, I would suggest it's a lower risk than the NASDAQ is or um, high-risk growth equities. So sitting there, clipping a coupon is something that I believe longer-term investor with cash on the sidelines could be doing. And that's basically what I'm balancing at the moment. It's like, should I be sitting in, in cash or cash equivalents with excess money that isn't being managed for 30-year time horizon? Or should I be putting it to work right now because I think that there's a really great opportunity because equities are undervalued? So what am I looking at? 
I mean, that is a big, I'm not looking at economic indicators because the economy is not the market and the market is not the economy. But I've always liked to start with the US dollar specifically. And I'm a big believer in reversion to the mean. So when you see outsized moves one way or the other, um, whether it be in Europe or Japan or in the United States, NASDAQ, oftentimes it comes back, right? There's nothing more powerful in financial markets than reversion to the mean. Yeah. It's important to know that means also change all the time, it does. what that is. They but, trend. But they, exactly, they trend. So that's important context. Yeah, my, my other question was actually going to be your reaction to some of the, again, the online the online reaction, your reaction to the online reaction of the Burry trades, because those were the top three things saying, obviously, what is Michael Burry telling us that's going to crash <laughs> immediately? And I think it's important to dig into He's that. A billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> you're, let's assume you're not. Yeah, let's assume. But the thing is, like, with that reporting that's required, their thing is, like, so put options. There's no requirement to say when that expires or what do you have hedged against that? Or well, is it a part of a bigger trade that's that was going to happen, again, right after the quarterly reporting was going to happen? That context is not in that report. It's just here's two positions that is held by Scion Capital, whatever the name of his fund is, and that was the vitriol that came out of that was the reaction that online from those. Two yeah. Things. People just want clicks. And plus like, who's not going to react to that? The big short guy. Of course. So the guy's historically been fairly right, but remember he missed this most recent run by a mile. Mm-hmm. The dude was only in U S prisons <laughs> yeah. in 2022. Yeah. That, and he no longer holds that position. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so he changes his mind as the best investors all do. Mm-hmm. I think it really good. And, and to be fair, I mean, even if that put option, like depending on what that is, we just, you just finished talking about how we were on a historic run from January to, so the fact he's that probably he- betting on the reversion to the mean and then 8% sell off. And now he's going to sell the position. Like he literally could be doing that. And there's a quick buck that he can make. Now who's buying that, I guess, is the other question. But anyways, that it, all that context is not necessarily there. So you, I mean, again, if you're getting your news from a 14 second Instagram clip or whatever it might be. Don't invest on that sort of make sure that you're clicking in or doing a Google search for, I guess to to round it all up. It's really important to understand why people do things and you need to put it within context. And then before applying it to yourself, you need to put it within your context and to assume that you aren't the same as them and they aren't the same as you and that you both have different goals. Some people have the same goals as Michael Burry, which is to be wealthy or to trade markets, which I think he actually just gets a rise out of it. Um, and or feels move. like he's, he's, he's um, not necessarily making an impact on the world, but so much as it's mentally stimulating for him. Because I think he's not, he's pretty smart. Or maybe to make a dent on the, move the markets, as one would say. Like I don't our, even think he's big enough to do that. I was going to say like our good friend, Phil Mickelson, who, who based off yeah. his which, betting what a history. Story, hey? um, yeah, we don't, we don't necessarily need to get into that right now, but... No, Essentially, m- a billion bets over ten, a billion dollars <laughs> of bets over a ten-year or twenty-year time frame, I think it was, and was telling people to place their bets before he does because he might move the line. Yeah, just and epic stuff from our boy Phil. It's not surprising to me to see that Chambly had an opinion on his gambling <laughs> habits. He just keeps on jumping on the back of Phil um, to make himself relevant. And you know what? Um, for me, this made me more. It made Phil pretty endearing to me. Yeah. And I was already a huge it, fan. So Yeah, that, let's put that. Let's yeah. remember you just talked about context of you are a Phil I'm a apologist. Yeah. Are a le- I'm a lefty. What do <laughs> you want from me? I grew up watching Phil. I was a big Tiger fan too. I thought yeah. that they between the two of them, there it was a great dynamic. You know what's the saddest thing in the world? Is that Phil was never number one in the world. Yeah, I saw six, six major wins. Thirty nine or 46 professional wins, wins, Mm -hmm. never made it to first because Tiger was that good. Yeah, Brooksy, I know we've just digressed back into sports here quickly, but uh, Brooks Kepka had a good, I think I got- Good one-liner, that was pretty good. Yeah. He got him. Yeah, I can show you my number one of the world trophy or whatever, so. But that's, I mean, that's another context thing. We just talked about Phil played at a time it's no different than like tennis dynamic too over the last, you know, it was dominated by three guys. Golf was dominated by essentially two. Maybe, you know, there was the Ernie Els, the VJ Sings for a while during that era too, that had some major wins, but 
never could reach. There was so many good players during that time frame that never had a chance to have the same kind of impact in terms of either as a resume in terms of wins or accolades because you were literally playing at a time when the best to ever do it is doing it. So, yeah, it's it's crazy. I, I missed one putt inside five feet during all of <laughs> Phil's um, career. So, like, just remember, he was playing the absolute goat. It wasn't even close. Um, and to before we move into the Canadian – so. Back to my market update. Yeah, I would say let's, you know, I digress off the, the market movers who are um, Michael Burry and Phil Mickelson. I think but. the reason why we keep coming back to uh, Canadian real estate is because it's mm-hmm. contribution to the Canadian market in general. And how important I think it's it is. Yeah. overly important relative to the economy versus all other major countries. I think our real estate market is, sadly, such a large piece mm. that we have to focus on it, especially as Canadians. So... Um, I'm going to kind of put this to you Mm -hmm. here for you to set the table and then we can go from there. But yeah, so I, I, we were just reviewing the kind of CREA reports. So the Canadian real estate association reports from essentially the July report. So again, we're talking about looking at things either month over month or year over year in comparison to July. So national home sales edged down about 0.7% month over month from June to July Actual monthly activity came in 8.7% above the year-over-year comparison, so July 23 to July 22. Now, I think the context to be a, that's really important there is if you if we flash back to summer of 2022, I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong is when we had it was right off coming off the back of that one percent interest rate hike that we had, mm-hmm. and so similarly to right now where there is some uncertainty especially like in in both the american and but specifically canadian markets on what the i think september is the next becca canada meeting where we'll hear about any potential additional increase to the 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 basis points from interest rate perspective i think there's some uncertainty there there was certainly some uncertainty back in summer of 2022 and, and and way more it was more of a, of a cautionary take at that time to kind of sit on the sidelines and see what was going to happen if you were in on, in, on the buyer's side. So I think that's that I, I had seen that a few places in terms of the, the release of, of that data for July. And I think it's, I think it's more important to look at probably the, the current year comparables rather than looking at a year over year uh, specifically for July. Uh, number of new listed properties rose 5.6% month over month nationally, and the MLS home price index climbed 1.1% month over month and was down just 1.5% year over year. So we're starting to see some leveling off. I think by and large in kind of April, start of May, there was a huge uptick in the real estate market in general. We saw a big increase in prices starting to see a bit of a reversion down again with, I think, some uncertainty. I think trying to go regional with this from an update perspective, there was, there's was there con- been continued, I'd say, overall trend of, of downward activity in the GTA and Fraser Valley areas, but that was essentially nationally offset by gains in, surprise, surprise, Montreal, Edmonton, and Calgary. And so I think there's not a lot of news that came out of at least this report specifically for me. I think the overarching stats that come out of it, I think just mimic what we've been talking about in terms of sentiment and and where we're at in the cycle of probably real estate activity in general, getting to the kind of back end of summer here. And we're getting into a point where, again, there's some uncertainty with interest rates. So I don't think anything was necessarily surprising there. To dovetail off of that, with kind of an anecdotal piece that I read in from Global Global News Calgary. So they were essentially interviewing one of the real estate agents there who I think, again, I, I use the word anecdotally, I think this might be pretty specific to this guy's experience, but his name's Curtis Prokopchuk with EXP Realty. And so he was interviewed in this and essentially was saying that around 25% of his clients right now are from out of town. They're not investors. They're actually moving to Calgary to live a new trend that he's finding with most of his clients. So he said like he's quoted as saying two years ago, 
we were seeing a lot of investors come into the market from Ontario, and we've seen a lot of Calgarians frustrated with that because they were competing with those investors. But now we're seeing a lot of people wanting to move here. They're actually looking to be part of the community, et cetera. So he goes through and talks about one of his most recent sales with a couple from Ontario that was living in Kitchener. And so the, the couple is quoted as saying the house prices are almost double what you have here. The price I paid for this house in Calgary, I have to pay double in Kitchener, which again, we don't have the exact stats to back that up. But even if he's, you know, off half a point kind of thing, like one and a half times is a, is a big difference for someone who's looking to make that next home purchase. I'm assuming probably trying to trade up a little bit into what they were currently living in, et cetera. And so that was interesting. It's obviously, I think we've, we've talked previously on podcasts about kind of the exodus from on, Ontario specifically a little bit, obviously Fraser Valley as well, and the Vancouver area to, to Alberta from an affordability standpoint, uh, comparatively. And, but the, the real interesting thing that kind of blew my mind, and, and again, I think this is the most anecdotal piece of this, but so the real estate agent's quote is saying the, the whole deal was all virtual. We, we didn't see the house before or that the, the clients did not see the house before coming here. It was all through WhatsApp and f- through reviewing things on his phone. So the real estate agent goes on to say, I'd say about 90% of my clients have not seen the home or met me before we actually take possession of the property. So the one piece I wasn't sure, I was like, is that 90% of his 25% that are outside investors or is that 90% of his business? And that's just the way that he runs his real estate operation. So again, probably a more of a new age way of, of running real estate as opposed to the traditional let's go see six houses together and drive around on a Saturday. Obviously things have changed from that standpoint, but that was very interesting to me. And obviously people are, you know, with, with inventory levels being up what they're at, if you're a person deciding to make that, that jump from Ontario or Vancouver to, to a Calgary, for example, you know that you don't have time to fly out and do the weekend trip to go see the houses on Saturday and Sunday the ability for you to go on your phone and do a virtual tour and do all of your digital signatures and do your inspection virtually and all that kind of stuff has really changed the dynamic of who you're competing against, which I, I, I'm sure you can speak to a little bit with your, your most recent uh, home purchase, right? I think like the, the, the competition for a new home purchase is, looks drastically different than it did even a few years ago. Oh, oh, certainly. I mean, and I can, just anecdotally add to, mm-hmm. um, so maybe the, it's not, the home we have that, two now, and yeah. not anecdotal anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's fact. <laughs> yeah. Now it's fact. Once you have two people that have experienced the same thing, it's a fact, especially if they're, yeah. Anyway. So, um, I, yeah, I just sold my house in Shore Park. The, um, sold it in three days and over ask. And a big reason for that, if you asked my real estate agent who didn't think we would get over ask for our house was that we had a, um, a second buyer, or I should say like a competing offer come in from Vancouver, sight unseen, sent his real estate agent. He went and looked through the house, took a video, FaceTimed them as they were going through the house and they made us an offer that evening. That offer um, put us into a, like a multiple offer. And then obviously from our perspective, put us in a good spot and it ended up with us getting over asked for our house. And these people were Sherwood Park or Edmonton natives um, returning home. After, so know the area and stuff like that. Certainly. Yeah. And then also having a substantial amount of equity in their home in Vancouver, it put them in a position where um, the arbitrage between standard of living enabled them to make a mistake or um, make an investment into a house here where they could conceivably upgrade the home if needed to bring it up to their standards, but also um, make a purchase that may, might seem irrational to somebody in Edmonton, but is completely rational to them because of the price difference and standard of living difference between their place that they're coming from to where they're to where they're trying to purchase now. And that dynamic is playing out in Calgary more, um, I think specifically than it is necessarily in Edmonton for sure. But, but I can definitely speak to this being, um, fairly commonplace even in Edmonton. So, um, because the other piece too, that we, you chat, you, mentioned to me as a part of this article too is the fact that a lot of these people who are truly moving here and they're not just investing here but truly moving here but they now have the ability to work remotely with the company that they were previously with in Vancouver and in Toronto and are doing maybe a bit of travel to you know once a month or something like Mm -hmm. that but this this shift that we've talked about continuing I mean I know there's this drive for a lot of 
you know, companies, especially like people in professional services like you and I to be back in the office. And I think that's not going to stop, but there is a ton of companies that have found a great balance in mm-hmm. having their, having a, 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 a pool of remote workers that they are still efficient with, or if you're running your own business, obviously, then you can work from wherever you need to work from. So that's everything that has that, that barrier to the barrier to leave essentially has lowered a lot for, for folks moving from major center to major yeah. center. Lower standard of living. Demographics are better. Taxes are lower. Diverse industries. The Alberta, Alberta advantage. The Alberta I mean, <laughs> I'm not running for office, but I could see we're the allure. Back, we're back on Ralph Klein. Yeah, yeah, we're back, baby. <laughs> right up until oil goes back to 40 and then everyone's miserable again. But, um, but yeah, I mean, just the real estate industry in Alberta specifically, it's obviously um, keeping people in a good mood. Whereas I think the sentiment in other provinces that maybe weren't doing as well as us um, is different, largely because of this this dynamic or this big bifurcation between commodity-based industries with lower tax rates and cheaper housing and those that have gone through a 10-year super boom of housing. Yeah. And um, it's going to start to play out in politics. I really believe that. I think this next election is all about real estate, and that's all that's going to matter. I think multiple parties will try to make it about identity politics, and it's going to fail and fall on deaf ears. I think the only thing that's truly going to matter is going to be interest rates and housing and the the kind of matching or the marrying of the two. So it should be, should be fun moving forward. Um, if you are someone who owns a home in Alberta, you're lucky. If you don't, I really do feel for you at the moment. It's been, it's challenging to watch this happen, especially as affordability has plummeted through the floorboards. And um, I think over the next, call it year to two years, so long as oil prices stay above 70, I don't think it's going to get much easier. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I was going to say across the board, even on some of Korea's forecast for like heading into 2024, like Alberta is definitely the most attractive. Nova Scotia is also up there. Yeah, for some it's reason, nice there, but yeah, it's beautiful. But from a both from a um, a sales activity forecast and an average price forecast, Alberta is kind of right at the top and definitely ahead of national averages. So I think it could continue to be positive. But again, because I think that's the, you talk, we talked about context a few times already. Realizing that reviewing reports, it's an, it's important to know how much of a swing the GTA and Vancouver areas have on national reporting. We talked about that at length previously and knowing your market and knowing where you are and talking to the right people is, is an important thing to, to remember. So I want to make a shift to the Swift. -Swift. So this is a quote from Bill Simmons podcast his most recent one. I've never seen anything like the phenomenon around this concert tour. And I have been alive for all of the concert tours since mid the mid seventies from a cultural standpoint, from a multi-generational standpoint, fathers and daughters, daughters and moms, multiple generations. You have, my, you have people like my daughter, who is 18, who has not even known life without Taylor, Swift's, without Taylor Swift. And then you have people in their 30s who grew up with Taylor Swift. And then you have the people in their 30s who grew up with, without or with her. And then you have moms who are used to listening to their daughters. And then you have the show itself. I had friends who went to the first show, and I think she played 45 songs so according to bill um this tours or the the uh the show is three plus hours long yeah, she's like garth man she gives her like yeah it's, you're getting a full full bore performance so i think she just had her first show in toronto in in last night and um she just sold out sofi six times and based on the pricing of her tickets like going way way over ask they assume she could have done another six at 70,000 people. Garth Brooks sold out Edmonton. Rexall. I would say, do you think Taylor is going to get her jersey retired like Garth? Maybe. <laughs> she, was, she was like, they were giving her honorary mayorships in towns. So I wouldn't put it past a, um, a location to put her in the rafters. <laughs> um, if she came to Edmonton and did that, we would do it, no doubt. <laughs> um, but... Bill Simmons made a sports reference and he said that this is like Michael Jordan level success. She is the biggest thing in music right now. And it's not particularly close. You and I being Drake stands would assume, no, Drake's bigger 
Not anymore. Mm -hmm. Taylor Swift has taken the title, the crown, and she's running with it. It's an unbelievable um, fever around this tour. And give her all the credit because I think what's most interesting to me about this is not necessarily that she has a show that can be three plus hours long and she's only 34. Um, it's not that she has 45 hit songs that her, her, her depth of music is, is so incredible. Mm-hmm. It's that she's a business and the moves that she's made, I think speak to just the way in which our economy and the way we consume content and, and media has shifted and her ability to shift with them, leverage her fandom and fame and her true fans to position herself where she's no longer losing to big business. That the individual has has surpassed the power of the corporation. Just like James Harden. <laughs> yeah. No, sadly. But what I want to talk about is that this dynamic really sucks dry the center. And this is more so what I'm getting at. We have the biggest gap between, well, we call it the wealth gap, right? Where you have the ultra wealthy Elon Musk worth nearly $300 billion. And then you have a very poor group of people. The middle class has been thinning out. The, the, the reason why America and Canada and, and Western civilization has been so successful and something that we've always talked about is like this American Canadian dream where the middle class is strong and healthy and it's starting to fail a little bit or it's starting to fall apart where you have the bifurcation of the two. And I, you see it in all of these other areas of industry and um, music's no different where you have these aggregating platforms that enable or empower the superstar, the greatest. And you can do it in in technology, financial advice, accounting, legal, everything. The superstars are sucking up all of the money. And then, but also it gives the power to the individual on the other, the small end too. I think the internet distributes that way and it takes away from the middle a little bit. And the middle has always given to the, it's always been the corporation that employs the middle class that provides that standard of living. Mm-hmm. And now the internet has empowered the superstar and then the, perhaps the, the systematically oppressed, the, the lower end side, and it has given them power. And it's an interesting dynamic, I think. We've sucked out the, the middle to the, to the extremes a little bit. And I think the perfect meme for this is that distribution that where you have the guy crying in the middle and then you have the, I don't know, the simple person on the left and then you have the savant on the right. And it's basically like the one that I always laugh at is both of them, the, the simple person on the left and the simple person on the right are, are drinking or they say latte. And the guy in the middle is like complaining about how you're actually supposed to build wealth. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the, the ultra wealthy guy is buying a latte every morning. The guy in the middle, the miserable, complaining, center distribution, middle class person is like, no, you're supposed to make your coffee at home, save all that money, in, invest that in index funds, and let it compound over 35 years. That's how you're supposed to do it. And then the simple person on the left just buys the latte. And that's the <laughs> way that like that's the way that our society has gone. And I think that that meme is is telling very i think the we talked about reference sorry the, the canadian dream the american dream the how you that the bill of goods that are being sold when you say you're able to change your life when you come to these countries if you're immigrating here or even if you start as a lower class quote unquote in like the economic ladder you have the ability to move up classes. And I feel like that's the thing where people feel like it's not the case anymore. I feel like the sentiment has changed. But I also feel like it's just a shifting dynamic of how you make those moves too, which is what the American dream was or the Canadian dream in the 60s. Obviously, if we just preach the exact same thing in 2023... It's not going to, that's not the roadmap or whatever. No, the cultural fabric has changed, right? Like the importance of the family has changed. It's the, the, the distribution of, of time horizons different. Like you have, Mm -hmm. like I'll I'll even use our podcast as as an example. You have us, which would be on the far left distribution, the poor, the the, the very under listened to the, the not middle class podcast, but the unimportant. And then you have the far right, which would be the Joe Rogan on the right. 
the savant. We're both drinking lattes. And then the center would be TSN, 1260 radio. You have all of these properties that would be the center of, of audio entertainment. Mm-hmm. And they're getting demolished, mostly by Joe Rogan or by Pat, Pat McAfee or yeah. by these massive superstars. And also kind of by us, who is sucking... 2,000, 3,000 listeners out of their 70,000 listenership. Thanks for liking and subscribing. Yeah, yeah right. Okay. But like that's, that's what I'm getting at, right? So you have this weird dynamic where we're pulling on one end, so is the superstar, and more people are going mm-hmm. to the superstar, obviously, but the center's getting eaten alive. Mm-hmm. And Thinning ABC out. News, CNN, all of these, these properties that are the, the incumbent old news, old media, the thing that our parents grew up on, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Or they're at least dying, mm-hmm. right? And um, or, or drastically shifting drastically. To, to become... ESPN bet. All of these new changes. Yeah. They're, they're, the fact that we've seen all these moves from a media standpoint is because they are trying to become what those other ones are to M- some degree. Mbappe, $780 million a year. And then there's... <laughs> you know what I mean? The, yeah. the, the guy in the middle is not making it all. I mean, luckily there's salary caps in sports because there's no way you're going to get a def- like a six six man defenseman should be making two million. Connor should make sixty, and then everyone else should make sixty grand. I mean, that's if we didn't have salary caps, if we didn't have unions, if you didn't have all of these these uh, um, we'll call it structures in place. A lot of the time, you'd have this dynamic. And in free markets, and the way that internet distributes interest. It's causing this. Another hindrance against trickle-down economics. The, sort of. The, Don't listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I, I wanted to, you, you would, he was this guy, so Oliver Anthony, you think you had shared that little clip from me. He, I'm not sure where he's from. Country singer, absolutely hammering the charts. Oh, man. Came, like, became completely viral, but I think was seven of the top ten on... Either whatever it is, Spotify's Spotify mo- top ten songs. country songs or whatever, just like that's the example where you're just like again, you could be it's either the the top of the top that are making you, or then you have these viral sensations from the very bottom. Like, I, did it, you read about people's opinions on the song itself? No, is it because it's pretty like was it there a wokeism around it or was there? Honestly, <laughs> it, it depends where you're reading it. So if you're going to go read it on Fox News or you're going to read it on CNN. You could tell where they, they immediately went to politics, right? Right, and obviously he talks about unions, poor pay, um, talking about the struggle, of the struggle, his struggle. That's what the industrial struggle of a miner. That's what, and that's what music is supposed to be. And like speaking. this guy lives off the grid with his three kids, huge beard, nice redhead, yeah, great singer. <laughs> um, I could see how it's attractive. It bo- so this song, um, I think it's uh, "Rich Man from Richmond." Rich men north of Richmond. North of Richmond. Yeah. Um, went ultra viral, number one song in the country. And the it just speaks to the power of, of reels and TikTok because mm-hmm. that's where it blew up. And um, obviously it was politicized. And the, every, everyone on the left said that this is a right-wing dog whistle. And everyone on the on the right was like, this guy's speaking to the, the, the everyman. Just enjoy the song, God Why can't it? everyone just enjoy <laughs> a, like a talented artist for crying out loud? Um, but more interestingly, just with what we've been talking about here is that this person who is inarguably poor has skyrocketed to superstardom in a week. And in the past that generally would have taken 20 years. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, without the, the record label required, you know, mm-hmm. record layers labels, especially in um, the eighties, nineties, early 2000s, even like the middle of the 2010s until we started to have um, Apple Music and, and Spotify owned and continue to own the rights of music, right? And this is where Taylor Swift went through that battle with, with Scooter Braun and with her record label and, and trying to regain control over her past over her, music. Yep. And she was re, um, re-recording her old albums. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, she's a dog, man, for sure. She hundred percent is. And the, I think the other thing too, with with all of her, you had mentioned like the the amount of time that was between her last big tour and this one too, like a lot of four albums she released between her two tours. Like a lot of artists these days. I, I actually, this is anecdotal for sure because I don't go to concerts and follow tours that much. But 
I know for sure you in the comedy space, like it feels like these guys are always touring. Like all these artists are always like, it's always the next thing, the next thing. Like they're, they're, they're trying to capitalize on their newest stuff and getting out there and selling tickets. Whereas like this, obviously her approach, like with the amount of content that she created during the time between tours and now like just seeing this explosion of popularity. Power of scarcity. Yeah. So this is where I think everything's going now. Outdoor stadiums. Um, this is where entertainment still holds value. And I'm not sure. For the ne- top of the top. Yeah. I don't even know if that's the case necessarily. I'm still a big believer in thousand true fans. Sure. You're not going to be a billionaire doing your doing music. Not everyone. Sorry. Why? Why is that in our culture so bad? Oh, why can't you agree. just be normal? Why can't you just make a living doing something you love? Why do you have to be Taylor Swift? Um, so without going into that, um, it's my belief that, I mean, I'm super long groups and community and um, memberships now. I think that the future, the next 50 years, is going to be us moving back to person-to-person contact. Because the one thing we're going to lose with artificial intelligence and this new ability for it to send emails, post content, and do all of this and for us to not be able to determine whether it was real or made by a human being or a mixture of both, we're going we're gonna to desire more in-person contact. And that's going to push us into locations where we're part of membership, a part of groups, going to see shows. And the reason why sport, and if you, you saw it in Disney's earnings recently, they just had, um, I'm just going to read this from an article. They had, just one minute here. Um, They, well, basically, as a con- contribution to their earnings, they had a 23% decline in traditional, their traditional TV business. Mm-hmm. And as we had spoken about for the last 15 minutes, the center of that distribution is getting eaten alive. Mm-hmm. Their parks, killing it. So that's scarcity. It's in person. It's an experience. Mm-hmm. That's where people are going. And that's where the growth is. And that's what Taylor Swift has cultivated. She has this new four albums three and a half hours of, of content. She is now producing that in a 70,000-person 70 sta- 70, stadium across the country, and she can demand, sell that place out six times. Now, let's assume that's not everybody. You can now do that by going to, whether you're doing a com- comedy show in Houston or you're going to do it in, on White Ave Edmonton or whatever, mm-hmm. and you can do it multiple times and you can generate your revenue and do it that way. That's what people are desiring because Spotify create made music commodity it's accessible by everybody and anyone um that is just a mode of distribution if you want to make money now you need to then push it to areas in which you can control scarcity because otherwise if you don't have that control on scarcity you end up making your product a commodity and when it becomes a commodity the price drops because competition is unlimited and distribution is unlimited and the cost of distribution is now effectively free so in all entertainment media specifically, if you don't create that vertical integration of ways in which you can then connect with your fans, whether that be via swag, whether it be a secondary podcast that where you can control them with um, having subscriptions, those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, more stickiness, yep. That is the new strategy for anybody wanting to sell a product. You can't just go to YouTube or Spotify and be like, this is good enough. You need to create a new experience for them to, because fans really do want to interact with you. They do want to show that they appreciate you for what you provide for them. They want to exchange dollars for your, um, your services or your entertainment. Mm-hmm. So it will, it's going to change everything. It's not necessarily bad. Disney is getting hammered because they leaned too heavily and they, the earnings generated from ABC and their, their cable news network were outsized and not something that was going to be maintained because Netflix castrated them. So I guess this tangent has gone off a little bit, but for those listening, this is just me saying that strategy moving forward needs to take into consideration that the internet is free distribution. You put it on the internet, it's now a commodity. It is now worthless outside of the fact that it means something to the person consuming it. And if you want to profit from it, 
It is not going to be you going to the Canadian government saying, I, you can't post. I'm posting it on Facebook, but like now I want them to pay me for it. Yeah. You can't force that, that change in economics. What you need to then do is create a new place for you to communicate with your fans, with the people reading you, with whatever, right? So we're going about it the wrong way, forcing our, our aggregators to pay for it. They've disrupted the industry. They've given distribution to where the superstars win and the bottom end wins. If the middle wants to regain some economics, figure out a way to sell to your fans. Stop being too lazy. Yeah, build infrastructure around the new age. Don't hammer it down with regulation. It's just laziness. Yeah. Anyway. So I'm not sure on the Venn diagram of the Reform Millennials podcast and Swifties, but (laughs) for those that are, you're welcome for all that positive take because we know there's been plenty of instances where the Swifties have taken down or canceled something. Yeah. And that's not going to be from this because we just pumped her tires. Um, I just have one other kind of quick sports thing I wanted to circle back on. We talked about Lionel Messi coming to enter Miami and just kind of the, we don't know all of the details, but obviously specifically speaking to his kind of tie in with that deal to potential ownership in the MLS in the future, as well as a, a portion of the Apple streaming deal that MLS has. So there's been some kind of early returns on this. We don't have, Apple doesn't do a straight up release of, of viewership numbers, but essentially they've, without getting into the minutia of the different types of games that are being played in the MLS, but right now there's this thing called the League's Cup that they've designed. So the, it's a tournament that brings together 47 clubs from the MLS, Mexico's League, etc., cetera, um, has become a hit, largely thanks to the Argentine soccer star's performance. So I'm getting this information from a Sportico uh, article that just got released earlier this week. And so I'm just going to scroll down here. Like, I mean, we're talking about, like, we talked about these impacts, like Messi's got 480 million Instagram followers that has just parlayed itself into a, a gain of 24 million followers in the MLS and uh, Leagues Cup and MLS in general, social media handles. Like there's seen like an automatic uptick in all of those things just by simply bringing this guy on and having him obviously promoting the, the MLS activity. Uh, Messi's debut against Cruz Azul of Mexico, so in this Leeds Cup, drew 1.75 million viewers on Univision, making it the second most watched watched Spanish-language club soccer telecast in the U.S. of all time, behind only one huge event from 2008. From a viewership standpoint, we have far exceeded expectations, and much of that has been driven not just by domestic viewership, but international viewership across the board. Through the League's Cup, 50% of our consumption is in Spanish and the other 50% is in English. So it speaks, obviously, to the, the connection that's automatically been made there. According to the MLS, 800,000 fans have attended League's Cup matches for an average of 18,000 fans in each of the 45 group stage games. Inter-Miami's two group stage games rank as their first and second most attended matches in the club's history. Also, the first three games that were streamed on, on Apple Plus or the Apple MLS platform of Messi's games, the three most watched in MLS history. So the impact has been immediate, like getting back to, I guess, eyeballs. In addition, 22 of the 24 million followers MLS has gained since last season have come since Messi's arrival. Inter-Miami has 13.4 million followers on Instagram, larger than any NFL, NHL, or MLB team. So that's, I mean, I don't know how to equate an Instagram follower to value, but that number is kind of staggering when you consider that you got what, and this is one team. I'm sure if we had the rest of the 20 or 30, whatever there is MLS teams, I'm sure they pale in comparison, but to have a mover like this now, whether or not this can be sustained, that's just been the, that's been the age old question over time. Messi's the big, by far the biggest star they've ever had come over to play, but you've had the Beckhams, you've had the uh, Zoltan Ibrahimovic that have come over like, real like Beckham I think would be on similar level to Messi ish like not quite there because Messi's like greatest of all time Beckham was just a more of a pop culture huge player he's a star he's a star for sure but you got this guy coming over it's whether or not he's gonna play another two to three years maybe and then he's gonna move into more of an executive role within the league and and the partnership I would think 
how do you parlay this into sustained growth? And you sustained need continued growth? momentum. They need another superstar exactly. and another superstar and another superstar in the same way that Live Golf took them from the PGA. Yeah. They need to have sustained superstar acquisition. And that includes signing superstars or upcoming superstars. They need to have a, in my opinion, you need to have like a feeder league where. Well, I think the other thing too, the, the, the big thing in my opinion is if you can get the players is then having that intermingled with the rest of elite soccer in the world. So you have the champions league, you have, mm. you need to get your American teams intertwined some way. They're into never going to allow that. I know I it's going, I'm actually, I always say it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. This is something where the early returns on this are way better than even I expected. I was like, well, like obviously he's going to be a mover because of South America and his following yeah. in Europe, et cetera. But like this is unprecedented, obviously, for the league. So to see how they're going to either parlay the new users and how to create vertical integration and stickiness with their consumers, that's going to be one piece. The other piece is how do they continue their product being better on the field and getting more talent over? Yeah. And to when me, you're competing with the Qataris and the, yeah. and the Saudi Arabian leagues with the money there, it's really going to be about, well, like a legacy play and or how do you build equity into giving these people because you can't offer the $750 million salary that yeah. these players are getting. I'm... I don't know if it's going to work, but it does as someone who's only watched highlights from these matches, mm-hmm. it Nine looks like, games yeah, it looks like Messi is Vladimir Putin on the ice against people that are from Russia. <laughs> no, no, he's that much. No, 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 no. That's the complete opposite. He is that much more talented. <laughs> okay. You're thinking they're all taking it easy on him out there <laughs> yeah. so he can score more goals so they can put more money in their pockets. Yeah. That uh, might be the case, but I, I feel like, I feel like it's the opposite. I, I, I just wanted to quickly circle back on that. It's still really early returns, but I, I think obviously they're seeing a, a huge uptick from it. And, and it's, it's cool to see a league try new things mm-hmm. too, like MLS, We've talked about their relative values, like have have been increasing. How there's there's interest there because they they believe or investors believe in in professional soccer. There being kind of a a mix match on kind of potential growth to current values of their teams. So and they're and they're trying new things in terms of delivering their product to fans. They're trying new things, obviously, with uh, intermingling not necessarily trying to compete directly against Europe, but saying, okay, well, there's a huge soccer market uh, south of us too. How, how do we bring them into the fold and get more eye, like eyeballs on our product in, in North America from kind of Central America and, and South America? I think they're, it, they're at least trying new things, which is more than we can say about other leagues at times. So 100% agree. So Cam, I'm going to go with recommendations. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, I want to Shout out to Edmonton Sports Radio. They got a, what is it, 1460, 1440 1440, yeah. And then um, we also have uh, Dustin Nielsen doing his Edmonton Sports Talk radio, or Sports Talk streaming, sorry. He's not going to be on radio, but all streaming. through YouTube and, and podcasting. So kind of yeah. two new avenues of sports talk in it's our Not city. surprising to me that uh, none of our, our local um, media big names could get together to create one it's almost as though everyone's ego is too big but it would have been really great to see a combination of everyone yeah i mean obviously we don't know the inner workings no of course we don't but i would love to see that i mean Mm -hmm. good gosh we have in my eyes four or five very big prominent media names that are all across different ideas or sectors of, of entertainment, and it would have been a nice marrying of the two to, to bring everyone together to make a little bit of money, maybe have a, a nice um, advertising offering, but maybe that's coming. Um, I think the thing is, like, this is going to be new for Edmonton, the mm-hmm. way to do this. So I think it's going to be interesting to see the, I think the 1440 play is going to be obviously a mixture of being on radio, so being able to have your traditional car ride home, car ride to people work still want type that. thing. People still want that. And then the ability to live stream, the ability to podcast, and then same thing, I think, with, with what the, the other side has been doing. I, yeah, who knows what this looks like a year from now. Maybe they combine, maybe they do things together, whatever it might be. Obviously, at this point, they both believe there's enough of a pie for them both to be uh, to succeed separately. And it's going to be, we'll see how that goes. It's we definitely don't, we never a big know. pie. But it's, 
it's very, I think for a lot of Edmonton, obviously we're being very specific to the capital region here. It's exciting for a bunch of sports fans because totally. we've, we've definitely We still want it. And thank gosh it's it's going out before uh, the hockey season begins. Yeah, it'll be right into content season. So, so I got some recommendations. That. I made multiple trips to Invermere and I listened to a lot of podcasts and, and some books. I listened to the Plain English podcast who is uh, Derek Thompson. He had Tim Urban on where he talked about his thousand page book of human history. And he kind of just um, overlays. It's really to put it into the context, the, the age of the earth into our impact on it. And um, just how quickly um, we've gone from call it a million people on earth to 8 billion. And um, in the context of a thousand page book, human human beings being on the planet was is on page 945 and um the last three paragraphs of of earth or of that book and our impact on it being back to the industrial revolution and just how quickly we've grown and the acceleration of impact and standard of living improvements um the the dynamics of economics and human knowledge. I Every time I read Tim Urban, he scares me, but makes me more optimistic about the future. So for those that have, have, have thought about artificial intelligence, perhaps um, this is the best time in, in the world and we're likely never going to see a better time. I think listening to this specific podcast or even um, going and reading his book would be a good a good thing to do and it would be healthy for your brain. If you're really pessimistic, someone who is concerned about the world ending, I recommend not listening to that podcast and going and reading that book because in his mind, he believes that outcomes, positive and negative, are becoming um, exponentially more robust. So the, the benefits of technology is that it's a lever on our abilities to one, cause harm, and to one, improve people's lives. And you can take that however you see um, this, the future of the world, but it means that we need to be more conscious of bad things that could happen, but it also means that we're going to be able to solve ever bigger problems because of technology and the leverage that it gives us. So I really rec- that's my number one recommendation. Also, if you're a tech person listening to this podcast and you've realized that the last six weeks we haven't talked a lot about technology specifically, um, the Dithering podcast was great where they talked about the Microsoft co-pilot keynote where they really dove deep into the impacts it's going to have on workflow for those that are integrating Outlook, Excel, um, and the Microsoft 365 suite into their lives and what's going to happen with its integration with OpenAI. And um, they also kind of go off and, and, and chat a little bit about competitors and what it's going to do for that sort of work, services work like you and I. Um, I'm really, it's really interesting. It's crazy what we're going to be able to do. Can't wait. It's going to be a good one. Um, no recos for me this week. We talked about everything. So that's why I'm here. I'm the recommendation guy. Yeah, that's what you're here for. That's yeah. right. You're, you're the, you're the brains. I'm the, I'm the looks. We'll leave it at that. We'll talk to you next <laughs> that's week. That's a fact.